Well, today is uh, Palm Sunday, and it's traditionally uh, celebrated. Uh, it's the week before Easter. Next week would be Easter, of course. And, uh, and generally, the church celebrates the um, arrival of Jesus to Jerusalem. And uh, we take this Sunday to try to prepare our hearts for Easter. And um, we're going to look at a passage today that uh, kind of highlights an extravagant devotion of... Uh, a woman by the name of Mary, Martha's sister, and Lazarus' sister. And uh, it's an extravagant devotion uh, that is worthy of our consideration and even imitation. So if you would uh, join with me in John 12, 1 to 8, we'll read through it. John 12, 1 to 8, and then try to orient our mind around it. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he was, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, let me just set the scene, if I can, for you. Let me set the context, and I want to try to draw out a few uh, considerations for you. First, the, the, the scene is um, uh, obviously John 12, is following John 11, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, this is a profound act to draw a man who had been in the tomb for days and brought him forth to life. There's all kinds of commotion, as you can imagine, stirring in Bethany, which was the hometown of Lazarus, and just two miles outside of Jerusalem. And there would have been all kinds of commotion about this Jesus. Now, remember, the Passover was a celebration that Israel would, uh, would celebrate every year, and it was commemorating God delivering Israel out of Egypt and slavery and, and saving those who had blood around their doorposts. Remember, the, the angel of God went and took the life of every firstborn except those covered by the blood. And, and so Jerusalem would swell by tenfold. It would be huge. The, the town would be filled. And there was this excitement that Jesus is going to make an appearance. And, and they were thinking, the sky's the limit. I mean, if he can raise the dead, then nothing's too tough for him. And so there's an excitement that Jesus is going to come out and announce this kingdom. Well, with the excitement of the people, there was, there was equivalent fear among the leaders. The leaders saw Jesus as a threat to their leadership, that Rome would see Jesus as a revolutionary and, and would take away the power that the religious leadership had. And so they made a plot. We're going to arrest this guy, and we're going to kill him. Not just Jesus, but if you were to continue reading in John 12, they're going to kill Lazarus as well. Why? Well, Lazarus was like a, a walking testimony to the power of God in Christ. And, and, and all this attraction and popularity going to Jesus because he was alive. So let's kill him too. 
Now, Jesus, of course, knows this, and it doesn't in one... It doesn't at all threaten him or, or convince him not to return to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. It is funny, the plans of men, as if we're going to somehow outmaneuver God. Jesus knew he was coming to Jerusalem, and he knew he was coming to Jerusalem to die. Now, they're over here trying to plot his death. The plan of God had been set. Jesus had already said that he was going to die. He, would, he would already said he would die in Jerusalem. And so he goes back. Now, he stops at Bethany for this dinner party, of all things. And it was a dinner to honor him. It was a dinner to thank him for raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, can you imagine this party? I mean, talk about a dinner party. I mean, Lazarus is there. The the townspeople would have been there. They're the ones that hauled him and put him in the tomb. They mourned with the family for those days after death. And now he's sitting, eating, reclining at the table, it says by John. I mean, what would they have said? Did you see a light? That's what a lot of people would have said. <clears throat> would you experience? Would, well, where were you? What was it like? Uh, can't you imagine the conversation? I, I would love, I wish John would have told us what they said. But John thought of something more important to tell us. And that was, an act of devotion that is still being talked about. This act of pure devotion by Mary over Jesus. That's what was most important. It's interesting because there's two characters here in the story. There's Mary and there's Judas. They're both friends. They both professed faith. There's Mary. Mary is uh, a friend of Jesus. Of course, he had eaten at their house before in Luke 10. They had many conversations. I think she would have considered herself a good friend of Jesus. Judas, he was an apostle. He was chosen by Christ. He had seen and heard it all. He was always there. And you have these two people. And and Mary is the one who displays great devotion. Mary, the woman, the marginalized, the uneducated. The, the one who wasn't privy to all these things. The woman. Amazing how oftentimes women are the ones that have that delicate intuition to know what's going on. She becomes the example that we're to follow. She becomes the worshiper that we're to look at and say, wow, this is a pattern to follow. Uninvited, she comes and anoints his feet and wipes his feet with her hair, and we're just left, we're left dazzled at her example of devotion. For 2,000 years, they've talked about her, and we're talking about her even today, just like Jesus said. He said in Matthew that wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done for me will be told in memory of her. Jesus was right. We are talking about her right now. What is so memorable about her, though? And that's what I want to pull apart. I, I want to just give you, I want to give you three little thoughts that you would consider in understanding your own devotion and faith. And let me explain what I mean. In, in most stories, when Jesus teaches, or in the Gospels, you'll have the older brother and the younger brother, you'll have the Pharisee, and you'll have the tax collector, you'll have the Pharisee, and you'll have the prostitute, you have Judas, and you have Mary. We're given two figures to find who are we? 
you're supposed to look at yourself in the story and say, which one am I? Now, we all want to be like Mary, obviously. Uh, but, but most of us, I think we're going to feel, at least you're going to feel like I feel, I think over, I'm over on Judas' side a little more at the beginning of the story. And, and now you may not say, well, I'm not Mary and I'm not Judas. Well, there's a continuum between them. And, and you're to kind of find where you are on this. This is how you, the listener, engage in the sermon. Where are you on this? Okay, so three things I want you to think about. The first thing is this, that true devotion, extravagant devotion, has to come from a biblical faith. It has to come from a genuine faith. Let me take Mary first as an example. Mary had heard Jesus preach, as I said. I don't know the faith that Mary had initially. I I mean, she heard him. She enjoyed him. He was a good friend. Did she believe that he was all that he said? I don't think so. I I think in John 11, when um, when Lazarus had died and Jesus came after he had been buried, Mary said, if you had been here before he died, I know that you could have healed him. So there was a measure of faith in Jesus, at least as a miracle worker. But the implication was when she talked, but now that he's in the grip of death, you probably can't help him. So her faith didn't extend that far. And, and so I don't know where she was, but she was not a woman of faith at that stage. Now, Jesus, of course, goes to the tomb and he says those words. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, will live. Well, that's easy to say. Anybody can go to a tomb and say that. But then Jesus did what none of us could do, and he called forth Lazarus from the grave, and he came out after four days. He comes walking out. Well, he raises Lazarus, but he also raises Mary's faith. And Mary now sees him. With a word, he vanquishes death. And with a word, in her mind, he is the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. I I think her faith was raised from the ashes over that miracle. And that all that Jesus had said prior to that, she now believed. Why? Well, look, she begins to anoint his feet for burial. Why would she do that? Well, she knew he was going to die. How would she know that? Well, he had said it. She didn't believe it. Now she does believe it. She has a true faith that believes in the word of Christ who says, he's going to die. I'm going to anoint him. Is it a surprise that Jesus came and did all this around Passover? Passover, that feast where the blood is is just torn, or the lamb is torn, the blood is shed? Is it any wonder why this is happening at Passover? She now sees Jesus is the lamb that we've been sacrificing for years. He's now the lamb to take away my sins. He's the provision of God. Like when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. He made the same connection. And so Mary now understands he's the one to take away my sins. I believe in him. He's not just powerful to save, but he's actually going to sacrifice himself for us. She now understood he's the son of Eve that was promised to crush the head of serpent. He's now our Sabbath rest, the one in whom I'm going to have rest. And she found peace. She found forgiveness in Christ. Hence, the devotion. In other words, her devotion of breaking this this oil, perfume, and pouring it on him was birthed out of her faith that he was who he said he was. You can't have devotion, true biblical devotion, without a faith. 
Look at Judas for a minute with me. Uh, Judas had a faith. He did. He had some degree of faith in Jesus. But his faith was rooted in what Jesus would do, not in who Jesus was. So when Jesus didn't perform according to the ends that Judas had hoped for, then his faith was dashed, and hence, by the end of the week, he's betraying Jesus. True biblical faith, and this is how you know the degree of your faith, gives birth to a devotion, gives birth to an increasing affection for God. Is it any wonder when Matthew did write, and remember, this story is told both in, in Matthew and in Mark and in John. And Matthew and Mark speak about that, that it will be told about her. Wherever the gospel is preached, this will be told about her. Now, why? I I was thinking, why is that the case? And and I was thinking, because when the gospel is preached and people understand the salvation that is in Christ, of course, acts of devotion like this will occur. I mean, it makes sense that people would find joy and satisfaction and happiness in God because of what he's done. How can you not be happy? But some of us aren't. And I want you to ask yourself, what is the level of your joy, your satisfaction, your enjoyment of God in Christ? I mean, many of us don't have a lot of affection. I'm not talking about a giddiness. I'm not talking about you're laughing all the time. I'm talking about a settled contentment, a, a satisfaction in God that he is sufficient for you regardless of your station in life. I think some of us actually have a temporary faith. The scripture talks about a temporary faith. Scripture talks about the unconverted believer. That's what it could be called. A a person believes in Jesus for a season or for a time. Or or they may believe in Jesus for a miracle. You have cancer. You've lost your job. You appeal to Jesus. Save me. Give me. Help me. Extend my life. And and, and if you're healed or if your life is extended, you may believe for a season. Or if not, you kind of lose interest. This is kind of that prosperity faith. God, give me. I, I, I need more finances. Or I need, I need better grades. I need help on the test. And it's appealing to Jesus for a certain set of ends. And when those ends come, I'm all about some Jesus. When those ends don't come, uh, Jesus kind of falls away. He falls sway to the, to the side. And he's not so central. I don't really have affections for him. He becomes in a, he's comfortable in a box at that point in my life. I mean, I think you see this. There can be a faith that has no affections, that's not saving. And we see that in James 2. When, when Jesus or James warns about the faith of the demons, he says they believe and they shudder. They're actually scared of God. And many of us may believe we have a, a theology that might be somewhat right, but there's no affections. That's a problem. You know, you have the seed that Jesus teaches in the parable of the sower. Some seed falls on rocky soil. Some seed falls among thorns. They sprout up initially, but when the sun comes out and the trials comes on, or the pleasures of life are there, it chokes it out, and it doesn't last. It's a temporary faith. It's an unconverted believer. Is that where you are? If you were to measure and say that my faith is somewhat synonymous with my affections, where would that put your faith? When we look at Mary, she has a clear understanding of her sin. Her affections are birthed out of, I am condemned by God in my sin. I have been delivered by God through Christ. 
He has come to take my sin and my shame, bear the wrath of God as the lamb would, and the blood has been shed, satisfying God that he is both just in punishing my sin, but he punishes my substitute, and I am declared innocent because of his grace. That causes a joy, doesn't it? Doesn't it say in Luke 15 that God rejoices over the sinner that's saved? Should not the sinner rejoice over the sinner who's been saved? Shouldn't we rejoice like God rejoices? Shouldn't there be a joy and a satisfaction? I was thinking about the other devotion story in the Bible, which is the prostitute in Luke 7 who comes to Jesus. And do you remember the story that, that, that he must have been preaching that day, preaching the gospel, because she comes at night. She, uh, Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee having dinner. A lot happens around food, folks. Uh, the, uh, and, and she comes up, she's a prostitute, comes up to Jesus, and of course they didn't sit in chairs, they reclined against the table, their feet were stretched out behind them, and she wets his feet with her tears, weeping, just joyful gratitude over his forgiveness. She weeps on his feet, she dries his feet with her hair, and what does Jesus say to her? He says, your faith has saved you. Why would he say that? He sees her faith in her devotion. Her devotion is the result. It's the fruit of her faith. And so we have to ask ourselves. In fact, let me remind you, John Calvin wrote in his institute, he speaks about the temporary Christian, by the way, and he says this about the, about the temporary Christian or the Christian that ought to have affections. He says, Christ cannot be known without the sanctification of a spirit. Faith cannot possibly be disjoined from pious affections. In other words, there has to be a holy satisfaction, a joyfulness, if you're saved. It's not going to look the same way in each and every one of us, but there's going to be that, that settled disposition of pleasure in God. Listen to what Richard Sibb said about this. He was a Puritan from the 17th century. Listen to how strong he is about the demand for affections. He says, affections, therefore, are lawful. Yes, necessary in God's children. All actions in God's worship are esteemed according to the affections that they are done with. It's profound. The way you sing, the way you, the way you pray, the way you listen, to be done with affections. We are as we love not as we know. What is the life of a Christian but the performance of things with courage, delight, and joy? And therefore, the strongest Christians have the strongest affections. For religion does not harden the heart, but softens it. Regeneration does not take affections away. It restores them and sanctifies them and purifies them. So the first thing we learn about this devotion of Mary is that it was birthed out of a faith. So immediately we stop and say, where are my affections? Well, we got affections for all kinds of things. But where are my affections? So they birthed out of this profound appreciation and awareness that Christ has come from God to deliver us from sin through the gospel. That will give affections that are not subject to the trials and the times of this world. That's the first thing I want you to consider. Second thing about affections or devotion, extravagant devotion from Mary, is that true extravagant devotion 
ought to have characteristics that reflect Christ as supreme. In other words, watching a devotion, watching a person worship, seeing their life ought to reflect how valuable Christ is. We see it in her life. Look with me. Number one, her worship is a total worship. She has given everything that is most precious to her in breaking this flask of perfume, expensive flask. She, you know, perfume's a funny thing. You don't need much of it. Just a little drop and you smell it. Now, I learned this when I was 14 and I was introduced to Old Spice. <laughs> I think I was a quarter mile away and my mother said, less is more. <laughs> she could smell me coming. I, I was on the cutting edge of cool at that point. Perfume goes a long way a little bit. You know, just a little drop here, a little drop there, and it's enough. Probably, probably more than enough. She dumps the whole thing. She gives it all. No reservation. Nothing held back. It was all dumped. At the end of the day, what you would say is, boy, she's committed to him. He must be worthy. Look at her. I mean, there's nothing left. She didn't hold any back. She didn't keep any reserve. Reminds me of the woman at the temple treasury given the last two mites, those last two little lepton, those little coins that were just about valueless. That's all she had. That's all she gave. It's amazing. When you saw her, you had to say she must be trusting in God. God must be good. Look at her. She's casting herself completely on him because she's got nothing now. And she gave the most precious thing. It was a total devotion, a total devotion. Uh, secondly, you see in this act of devotion, second characteristics that, that reflects his worth is the extravagance of it. I mean, the extravagance. This is pure nard. That helps you, I know. Nard is a plant, you ready for this? In the pasture lands, in the Himalayas, in India and Tibet. Now, we're in Jerusalem. It's a long way. It's really expensive. And she gave a pound of it. Twelve ounces, by the way, was a Roman pound. And, and so she gave all of that. And it was pure. It's called a pistic nard. Pistic is our word for faith. It's a genuine nard. It wasn't adulterated. It wasn't mixed. It wasn't extended. It wasn't diluted. It was very pricey. Judas comes up with a, a figure of 300 denarii. One denarii was wages for a common laborer for a day. It's an annual salary of a common laborer. Let's say 15 bucks an hour, 2,000 work hours in a year, $30,000. I know you're thinking, where'd she get that kind of money? Well, we don't know. Could have been a family heirloom. We know that their family was probably wealthy. Why? Well, because Lazarus was buried in a tomb and not in the ground where most people were buried. So maybe they had money. We don't know. But the reality of it is, it was a, a gift of great extravagance. Isn't that true? Don't you know the, the value that someone has in a person's eyes by the gifts they give, it can be an indicator. I, I mean, it was an extravagant gift. Don't, aren't we kind of like, whoa, that might have been a little over the top. But isn't that what missionaries do when they leave everything here, the comfort and convenience, and all for the sake of Christ, they go over there? Or, or, or those that even lose their lives? Isn't that the most extravagant gift? To give your life, and doesn't it show that Christ is so worthy? And so glorious for someone to, to, to bring that upon themselves or to divest themselves of such wealth, must it not relate to his extravagance and his beauty? 
But there's more characteristics that show us his worthiness. How about our humility? In, in Matthew and Mark, in their stories, they highlight that she anointed his head. John focuses on the feet. Now, she probably did both. But why does John pick up the feet? Well, because the feet were the dirtiest part of the body, and the feet uh, were only handled by the lowest form of the servants. Even a disciple under a master would never be expected to care for the feet. That was the lowest of the lowest position. And she takes this ointment or perfume, and she prostrates herself and washes his feet with it, showing us his absolute dignity that I will take $30,000 gift, and I want to just wash your filthy feet. And then she goes a step further. She unbinds her hair. Now, a woman would not unbind her hair in public like that. Why? Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, we're told why. Hair for the woman. Today, it's really important. Back then, it was her glory, it says in 1 Corinthians 11. She takes her glory, she takes that which is most intimate and precious to her. And she dries his feet with it. Showing his absolute worth. That the most that she has, the most precious, the most intimate, I would like to clean his dirty feet. That shows you he is worth something uncalculable. So humble. Her devotion goes on, though, in terms of these characteristics that show his worth. Uh, look at the public display here. I, I, I mean, do you ever wonder when you read these scriptures, it, it says here that the house, at the end of verse 3, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. In other words, her worship wasn't this private act of devotion done in a corner where nobody sees it. It was done uninvited in front of everybody. And, and the house is filled with perfume. Why would John add that detail? That's a detail. I mean, if parchments were expensive, ink was tough to procure, why would he add that? Now, some might say, well, it's to display that he was an eyewitness and increase the authenticity of the text that we can believe. That could be true. I think there's more. I think it shows us the nature of true devotion. True extravagant worship affects more than just the worshiper. I think there's a sense that we all are touched by it. Like as the smell went throughout the house. So when you see somebody worship, like her, you see somebody worship, you're inspired, you're, you're overwhelmed at the dignity of Christ by seeing her. I mean, I think that's why we have our children with us in, in worship. I, I recognize kids don't understand a percent of what I'm saying. But they understand you. And they see you worship. They see you take notes. They see you pay attention. They see you humble yourself under God's word. They see you sing. They see you. You're creating categories for them. They are worshiping. They are watching you worship. And they're going to begin to draw their own understanding of his glorious. If it's frivolous in here, if it's goofy, if it's, if it's stupid, they're going to look and a portray God in the same fashion. If they see reverence and awe and devotion and, and tears and happiness and, and satisfaction in God, that's what they're going to see God as. They're going to see who you see is what they're going to see. And that's why we have them in here. But more than that, when I see you do acts of devotion, it encourages me. I mean, the same idea of this public display of her worship affected everybody. You know, we were 
pleased to serve the Schallebarger family last week uh, with Bering Spence and uh, and Karen Smith and Florence Rabin took the lead in ministering to this family and getting things organized. I know there was a, an army of people here. And I, I just, as a pastor, I was blown away by that. I was greatly encouraged. I was encouraged by Susan's faith and her, her diligence to fight for joy in the midst of the struggle. I was, I was greatly encouraged by, by Karen and Florence doing all the work that they did, even the little details. They needed cookies. I don't know. I think 500 cookies were dropped off here. It was amazing. People came out of the woodwork to serve. It just was a blessing to me. People were devoting themselves to God by serving this saint, and I'm walking away smelling the perfume. That's what happens when we worship and we devote ourselves to God diligently. It has an influence on other people, and I want you to know that. That was a characteristic. It displays the value of God by the way we serve others. And, and then and the last characteristic, under the second point, the last characteristic is this type of worship is problematic. I will say this. When you devote yourself to God, when you have extravagant devotion, it's not all going to be cheered. You look at Judas. Judas says to her, why the waste? It could have been sold and money given to the poor. Now, he wants to be appearing as a humanitarian, we now know that he wasn't. The detail that John adds was given to him. In hindsight, he's writing it. They didn't know it at the time, of course. They did find out later. But the reality of it is, even if Judas was looking for his own pockets to be filled, it says in Matthew and Mark that all the disciples agreed with him. And I wonder if some of us would have agreed. I think I would have agreed with Judas here. I, I think I would have thought it was excessive. I don't think I would have understood what she was doing. I think I'm dense enough to think that was too much money. It was impractical. It was inappropriate. We could have done a lot of other things with that money. I think that's what I would have said. She didn't seem to care, frankly, that in the problematic nature of this worship, she didn't care. There's a certain self-forgetfulness in worship, right worship. You seem to forget about everybody else. You seem to not care about what people think about your worship because you're so caught up in enjoying Christ that if people think you're excessive or they don't think you're being practical, in a way, it doesn't really matter. I, I'm, I'm devoting myself in the way that I feel called to devote myself to Christ. So how do you, what characteristics of your devotion would reflect Jesus as worthy and valuable? The way you sing, the way you read the scriptures, the way you listen, the way you pray, do they reflect a value? The way you give, the, w- the way you serve, do these things reflect that he is so supremely valuable that there's nothing that compares to him? I think a lot of us, I need to heed the warning of practicality pushing out extravagant devotion or, or sensibleness. Now, folks, I'm not trying to set up false dichotomies here. There is balance. There's no question about it. And I'll talk about that in just a minute, the uniqueness of this opportunity. But oftentimes there's a practicality, a utilitarianism that will often push aside this extravagant worship that we're talking about, this extravagant devotion. There can be selfishness. There can be fear of man. What are they going to think if I raise my hands in worship? 
What are they going to think if I give more than everybody else? Are they going to wonder that I'm trying to promote myself? And all those things play havoc in our mind with this extravagant devotion. I ask you to consider yourself in this. What characteristics of your worship reflect his supreme value? And then the third point I want to make. So the first point is simple. The true biblical worship has to flow out of biblical faith. Otherwise, it won't last. And then, tr- and, then, and then true extravagant devotion is going to be reflecting his absolute worthiness by what you do and how you do it and why you do it. And then the last point I want to make, and this is the briefest point, is that extravagant worship receives the applause of Jesus Christ. That, that this kind of devotion pleases Jesus Christ. Look at when Jesus in 7 and 8, Jesus, Jesus weighs in on this, on this event here. And he says, leave her alone. Can you imagine? Jesus, the one who's going to die, smelling like perfume. You leave her alone. He rebukes Judas. And he rebukes all who would follow Judas's line of thinking. And he says, that what she has done has been for my burial. She's the only one that got it. She's the only one wise enough to get it. And she's done a good thing. In fact, Matthew and Mark says, she's done a beautiful thing. And as I said, it's going to be told forever. Until Jesus Christ returns, can you believe? The impact of Mary's devotion will be affecting millennia. It will always be told about her. So profound was her worship. He defends her because she is preparing for his burial. She gets it. He's going to die. He needs to be anointed for this death as our Lamb of God. And so she anoints him. The others didn't get it. And then he has these words, which are kind of enigmatic. You know, he says, you'll always have the poor with you. I used to take that as a pass. Well, why bother then? They're here. Got them. Don't need to fuss about it. But I didn't understand. I I didn't understand... uh, that what Jesus was saying was, she is doing a unique work because this is a unique time. The earthly ministry of Jesus in the flesh was about to be over. And so this was a unique opportunity that these men, following this lady, should have thought, bring it on, bring it on, because it's about to be over, his life. And, 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 and they didn't see that, but she did. Obviously, Jesus isn't being callous here. Jesus ministered to the poor. Jesus was, in fact, poor. In fact, what he says is even more startling in Matthew. He says, the poor you'll always have with you, you can serve them anytime you want. Boy, isn't that convicting? You can serve them anytime you want. How often do you want to? How often do I want to? I don't even think about it sometimes. So I'm worried about them wasting 30 grand. I'm not even worried about three bucks over here or the guy on the corner. Now, I know, I know it's complicated in dealing with the pure, poor. I, I, I get that. I know it's complicated. You don't want to create a problem. You don't want to further a problem. But I think a lot of times, just because of the complicated nature of the ethics, I just step away from the whole thing. He said, the poor you'll always have with you. Je- Mary did a unique thing, and she was rewarded for it. Her devotion pleased God. God found her worship extravagant so that it's going to be told forever. It's been inscripturated. We can now be touched by it. He is pleased with extravagant worship. Uh, On this third point, though, let me just press a couple things into your soul right now. I want to remind you that seeing Mary, even though it's unique, it's also a pattern for us. 
I, I would say that from this we can draw that worship takes precedence over social action. I don't want to put them against each other just yet. I just, in terms of a priority list, we always worship Christ. We always worship God first. Now that doesn't mean we do that instead of. We do this first and it gives birth to this. So in other words, devotion, extravagant devotion, takes place first because it's a priority, but it also takes place first because it's a fuel. It fuels our service to others. It, fu- it fuels our acts of kindness to the poor. And in other words, I always know when I'm doing things for the name of Tom Mercer, because if, I, if I'm not appreciated, if I'm not recognized, if I'm not acknowledged, then I can get my feelings hurt. And, and I know right away when that happens, you know what, Tom? You've been doing it for an audience, and it hasn't been to God. And so I'm convicted by that, and I repent. I always know that, and I think you know that. So when you feel like you're grinding your axe because people haven't said anything to you, I can hear the Spirit saying, so who were you serving? Where was I in that picture? So devotion gives birth to service. When you serve people, whether it's the poor or one another in here, when you serve them out of the overflow of your love for God, there's a satisfaction that regardless of how they receive it, you're happy because it's been an act of devotion to God. I mean, for many of you serve. So many of you serve. I see teachers. I see ushers. I see sound folks. I see singers. I see elders. I see so many of you serving. The women's, the women's uh, retreat yesterday, um, Jennifer did a great job leading it and bringing so much to bear. And so many women were involved in making it such a sweet, fun place. And when it's done from the overflow of love, it's an act of devotion to God. So so devotion gives birth to service, but actually service becomes devotion. I mean, think about what Jesus said in Matthew 25. You know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. They said, when do we ever see you? He says, oh, when you did it to listen to my brethren, you did it to me. In other words, what, what, in this model here, we can now serve one another as acts of devotion to God. So those of you who are teaching, and, and I pray that the scalpel of the Spirit will just cut perfectly along an edge because I can offend people right now or I can convict. I only want to convict. But I want you who serve and minister to think about that for a minute. That when you're serving and ministering, you're not just meeting a need, you're not just filling a spot, you're not just helping out a problem. You're actually doing a work that is devoting and is devotional to God. That, that he is honored as you're there Wednesday night teaching. That he's honored as you're pushing the PowerPoint around. I mean, he, he says it. Th- that he's honored in our service. So be encouraged by that. I, I mean, recognize that it's not just, yeah, somebody's got to do it. No, it's not true. You're doing a great work, and it's an act of devotion for God. So, so let, me, let me close us in prayer, and, um, and, then, and then we're going to have a time of prayer, and then David's going to close us um, in just a minute. But, but I want you thinking, extravagant devotion. Some of you are convicted right now that you don't see, perhaps, your, your devotion coming out of faith. Perhaps you don't see characteristics of his supremacy in your devotion. Perhaps you're not sure if he would be pleased in your devotion. Maybe it's waning. Maybe it's dead. Let's repent then. 
the believer always turns to confession. God, forgive me. The grace of God is sufficient to pick us up and clean us off and, and give us the grace to begin to start again. Every Sunday, it's like a resurrection day for us. We're beginning anew. I'm not so worried about yesterday. I'm more worried about tomorrow. And and let's move forward by grace. So I'm going to initiate prayer. Then you can join us. I ask you to pray loudly so that we can hear you and join with you. And I ask you to pray briefly that others would feel inclined to follow you. And then David will close us.